Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie. It is Thanksgiving week, and we are thankful for you listening to today's podcast because today, people, we are going to talk about one of an all-time Thanksgiving movie. You're about to hear a spoiler-filled discussion about the themes, the characters, and ideas in the film. I'm your host, Rob Stennett, and I'm here today with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, what's up? What's up, everybody? We are here today to talk about... Planes, trains, and automobiles. If you have not subscribed already, uh, go ahead and do that, please. If you like listening to this podcast, you know we have a lot of return listeners every other week. So if you want to rate, review, subscribe, always helps us out a lot. Today we're talking about planes, trains, and automobiles. Uh, Why? Rob, Like, why this movie today? Well, a couple thoughts. First of all, what we like to do, and we don't always hit this exactly, but I like to do a classic film and then a contemporary film. Contemporary is something in the last five years. Normally, in classic is anything beyond that. So when we ask guests, or even as we're looking at our lineup, we're looking at those two things. Um, but I think it's important to say, to, for me to say, that I never want to pick nostalgic films. Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, I mean, I think nostalgia is a big like buzzword these days and everyone's making their like nostalgia play in order to try to like, you know, bring in them dollars. Um, but uh, what do you mean by you don't want to pick nostalgia movies? So I don't want to pick films that are just like, oh, like, for instance, I really liked Short Circuit when I was a kid. It was a robot and he had a laser and I must have watched that film 800 times. I would never <laughs> do that film on this podcast because I'm like, it's not in a meaningful movie. It's not an important movie. It's just a, you know, nostalgic movie. So when I pick a film and we talk about all the films that we pick, but when I pick something or bring something to the table, I'm always thinking about. This film is meaningful to me, but it's also meaningful to film history. And for anyone mm. listening to the podcast, it's like, hey, you should understand this movie. You should know what it is. You should know what it means. And it'll help you get a bigger picture of like movies in that decade and what they are. And for sure, like 80s, 90s, 2000s, like that was kind of my our lifetime. So we pick a lot there, but but we'll pick 70s films, 60s films like I like to pick films that are important and have a deeper meaning and not just like, oh, did you ever see this? This is cool. You should have seen it. Right. I feel like The Shining is the oldest movie we've done. And that's still 80s. It's exactly 1980s. Well, and I have a whole long list. Like, I want to do Chinatown. I want to do Network. I've alluded to some. I'm always a little nervous because I know the older you get, the more obscure films get to certain people but i'm like this is a baseline of understanding film and so for the more seasoned viewers they're like what are you talking about like everyone's seen chinatown but i know many of our (laughs) listeners haven't and for me a passion is like hey not just like movies that are like oh this is cool but like if you want a better understanding of film and what it means and how it built on itself and the films that we're telling today you should understand these films My kids read Shakespeare and they're like, Dad, why do we have to read Shakespeare? And I tell them so many modern stories are connected to Shakespeare. So many modern stories of what we romances and tragedies and the way that we look at the world like Shakespeare is the foundation of that. Am I saying planes, trains and automobiles is Shakespeare? (laughs) Kind of. Kind of. I I was just about to call you out. I was like, are you setting up our conversation about Steve Martin and John Candy's planes, trains, and automobiles by quoting Shakespeare? Because that's a that is a that is a big swing, my friend. 
So my kids are in classical school and they read To Kill a Mockingbird. They read Huck Finn. They read all these books and they read the books and they're like, I don't get it. I don't get why. And I'm like, you have to understand how important this book was and what it meant to American history, what it meant to literature and what it means to us today. And so I feel the same way about anytime we do an older movie. I'm like, hey, not just like, oh, this is a nice little film. You should see it. But like this is an important film to understand who we are and what films mean today. And I definitely think this is one of those films that is a zeitgeist film, that is a film that's like been referenced, so many memes, but there's a bigger story to it as well. That's that's true. Why do you think this film has stayed in the zeitgeist as long as it has? Well, that goes to my opening question today, which I'll ask back to you, which is, why are there no good Thanksgiving movies? Why are <laughs> Thanksgiving movies like so few and far between good ones? So I think there's a really easy answer for this. And I think it it is the problem of Thanksgiving. And that is that Thanksgiving is just Christmas light. Right. Like it's yeah. a warm up. It's like, you know, you're in the batter's box for Christmas when you're at Thanksgiving. It's like it's just a meal. It's just like a festive meal. You get family together. And in a couple of weeks, you're going to like up the ante and have a better holiday, which is Christmas. Now, my wife won't like that. I'm saying that because Thanksgiving is her favorite holiday. But for me, I feel like when it comes to like nostalgia and like magic and wonder and family and like all of the wonderful things around a holiday, like Christmas is just like ups the ante so far and what Thanksgiving has to offer that when you're making a story, like why go halfway, right? Like why yeah. do a Thanksgiving movie when you can do a Christmas movie? And I think that's why there's a billion Christmas movies and one Thanksgiving movie. <laughs> okay. We disagree a lot in this podcast. This is one of those times that you're a thousand percent right. Thanksgiving is the opening band to Christmas, at least yes. culturally. From I'm not saying personally. I'm not saying you shouldn't be thankful. I'm not saying that it, it's not meaningful to you. But I'm saying from a cultural standpoint, Thanksgiving is the opening band. It's just it's like it's like the the act before the national anthem at the baseball game. Like it is the right. opening opening band. It is such a junior holiday. It's such a junior <laughs> holiday. That, in fact, the most famous Thanksgiving movie, which this probably is, has exactly zero Thanksgiving scenes. There's no turkey being carved. There's nothing to actually do with the holiday. And this is the Thanksgiving movie, and it has nothing to do with Thanksgiving. Right. It, and it basically, you could swap out Thanksgiving for Christmas in this movie, and it would work exactly the same. This is a yeah. I'll be home for Christmas movie. They just are trying to get home to Thanksgiving, which to me feels like someone found a hole in the market and they found this script and just changed the holiday because they're like, you know what? There aren't any of Thanksgiving movies. Let's let's make this the the Thanksgiving movie so that people watch it. I don't think it was ever intended to be a Thanksgiving movie. It was just like, hey, I have this idea for this zany travel adventure. What holiday yeah. should we put it on? Mm, let's do Thanksgiving. Like, I think it was that much thought into it. But it became <laughs> like, again, it's the movie. You know, I mean, there's other Thanksgiving films that are actually more to do with the holidays. But they're more like dark contemplative dramas. There's there's movies like The Blind Side where there's like a Thanksgiving scene in the middle of it. But there's not... It's it's kind of amazing to me. It's that not there's a Thanksgiving not, movie. 
Yeah, there's not some like John Smith, Pocahontas. I'm not sure if they have anything to do with Thanksgiving, but some sort they, of like they don't. They don't even a little bit. That's embarrassing okay. how little they have to do with Thanksgiving <laughs> that you even said that. I don't know. I don't know. I was I was talking to my kids about what Thanksgiving means. My kids don't even know, but some sort of like pilgrims survive through the winter there movie where they go. I I just think like Jerry Bruckheimer or someone would have made that movie by now and it hasn't been made. There's no Hallmark Channel lineup of Thanksgiving films like nothing else exists except for this film. This is really all that we have. Yeah, I I think that is 100 percent true. I I, I also think I was kind of alluding to this just a second ago. I think there is a secret sauce out there to making movies around weird junior holidays that then get a cult following or a big following that that forces people to watch your movie every one of these years. For a very long time, I think the movie that I had seen the most times was V for Vendetta, which is not a particularly good movie. It's a kind of fun movie, uh, but it's 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 like a mediocre, fine action film with a lot of political ideas. But the reason I'd seen it so many times is because that movie has this running theme of the 5th of November. And there's a poem about the 5th of November and Guy Fawkes Day in London. And they say it all the time. So every time the 5th of, no- of November rolled around when I was in my like mid 20s, I was like, you know what I should watch today? V for Vendetta. And so I watched that movie every year for like eight or nine years in a row and it's be- and it's just because they like found a holiday to like put their movie on that had no other movies and i was like that's a pretty genius like marketing thing for your movie like why make a christmas movie when you could find another holiday and then well, yeah, be, like, be the cultural icon bill murray and harold ramus were like groundhog's day is wide open we're gonna grab that holiday by the throat and take it and make it ours <laughs> exactly <laughs> I, th- I think the other like prerequisite conversation we should have real quick is I'm curious of like, what is your relationship with John Hughes? Like, are you a John Hughes fan? Have you seen mm. many of his movies? What what are your feelings about John Hughes? Yeah. So um, last night I watched this movie. Right. And I got all the way through it and credits roll. And it was like written and directed by John Hughes. And I went, wait, no way. So I watched this whole movie and didn't realize it was a John Hughes movie, oh, wow. which is embarrassing. Um, but yeah, I've seen, I would say I've seen a fair share of John Hughes movies. I'm, I'm not like a, like an expert for sure, but like, you know, I've seen, I've seen The Breakfast Club and trying to think what else I've seen. I know I've obviously seen that's, that's like the big one, right? He was sort of the like 80s version of what Judd Apatow became in the late 2000s, which is like zany comedy of that era that then has this like deep heart packed inside of it where you go like, oh, weird. I care about these characters way more than I thought I would at the opening of this movie. Yeah, I mean, comedy plus heart is like what he does. Uh, I don't think there's ever been a director that defines and is defined by a decade more than John Hughes. Like he defined so much of what the 80s meant when you think about Breakfast Club Ferris Bueller's Day Off, mm-hmm. you know, 16 Candles, all these yep. like classic films he kind of makes. And then he's also like 1990 hits. Like I think Home Alone comes out that year. 
And that's like his last kind of big hit. And it's like the 90s hit and he turns into a pumpkin and he never really does much again. And the 80s, sure. like most of the great comedies or many of the great comedies, of the 80s were written, directed like he had his hands in it. And so it's so interesting. But I do think it is that it has comedy and it has heart. And I think probably the apex of it is this movie, Planes, Trains and Automobiles. Oh, so you think the apex of John Hughes of comedy and heart is this movie absolutely because i think i mean he had bigger movies i think home alone even though it was directed i think by chris columbus is a bigger film but i think this sort of like special john hughes formula like is perfected in planes trains and automobiles the comedy is there but there's so much heart that just kind of pulls you all the way through all the way to the end that makes you kind of care about these people care about these characters it's also just like cameo upon cameo in this movie ben stein comes up at one point and makes just a little announcement about things being closed that like at the beginning scene the like his kind of like the other advertising guy is ferris bueller's dad it's like by this point there's all these cameos of people that we know from other john hughes movies he's kind of like before it was even cool the apatow universe or whoever else like he had his own john hughes universe and if you watch this movie you see all these little cameos from people from his other films Right. Kevin Bacon is in it for a hot second and doesn't even yes. have a line. Yes. Which is wild. <laughs> I, I I couldn't believe it. I, I thought for sure he was going to come back at some point in the movie because I was like, yeah, it's th- Kevin freaking Bacon. Right. And, and this just, is post Footloose. This is not like Kevin right. Bacon was a random guy. Like he was a star by this point, you know. And the next year he stars in uh, She's Having a Baby, which is another kind of John Hughes film. So one other thing I wanted to read was uh, this quote. <laughs> by uh, Roger Ebert, which says, the movies that last, the ones we return to, don't always have lofty themes or Byzantine complexities. Sometimes they last because they are straight arrows to the heart. When Neil unleashes that tirade in the motel room and Dell's face saddens, he says, oh, I see. It's a moment that not only defines Dell's life, but it is a turning point in Neil's because he is also a loaning soul, too well organized to know it. Strange how much poignancy creeps into this comedy and only become stronger while we're laughing. I, I love what he says in that opening line of like, the films that we go back to the most aren't the ones that have uh, <clears throat> Byzantine layers of complexity, right? That right, like, right. I think as as storytellers, that we, we have this kind of um, predilection sometimes to be like, what's the most like complex and deep and meaningful and like layers upon layers of, you know, like... We, we talk about like Breaking Bad or story like that where we're like all these characters have so many complex like motivations and like obviously that stuff is great. Um, but that like sometimes the cultural touchstones are ones that's that are that are simple and poignant in their simplicity. Did you find this movie believable? Like, did you find kind of them continuing to get forced together in the same place like believable? Did you buy it? I mean, no, I, the the them continuing to be forced together all the time like that felt contrived. But I've had enough horrible travel situations that the like, what do we do next situation was like, I, I, I can't imagine all of these things all happening on the same trip. But like, I can imagine just about all of these things happening. It was It was so interesting to be thinking about this as a movie that was written what 30 years ago 40 years yeah. ago yeah yeah about 30 years ago 35 yeah 35 years ago um 
when like so many of their uh so many of the obstacles that they have to overcome on this with this travel things are things that I feel like, you know, I still I still go through today. Right. Like sleeping at the airport or your flight gets canceled and you're stuck in a city you don't want to be in. And so what do you do? It's so funny that you say that because I, I watched it again last night for the hundredth time. And I thought the same thing. I thought. Even though so much of the technology is dated, he's having to go on pay phones. At one time, the stewardess is holding up a paper with like Sharpie marker that shows like yeah. what seat he's in. And so I was like, <laughs> right. some of these things are so dated. But at the same time, that painful feeling of, oh, your your plane has been bumped. Your seat's been bumped. You're on a train. And like we were in Europe this summer and like we were on trains and all of a sudden they just wouldn't show up that day. And so that right. pain of like <laughs> you're traveling and when you're traveling, you feel so vulnerable. You have yeah. none of your stuff. You ha you're wondering how much money is in your wallet. And all those feelings just like pop out in this movie. And I think that's part of the reason it's a great film is because it's one of the best travel films ever made. And travel is such a unique 21st century you know, conundrum, 20th century conundrum, the last hundred years, you know, we've right. had this kind of ability to drive, to get on airplanes, to get on trains. And ever since we've had that ability, we've had breakdowns, stoppages, shortages, you know, pain from that ability. <laughs> right. And the idea of how like vulnerable that travel can can make you really really is a thing and is you know a, a great avenue for for comedy because it takes you know big big powerful people and kind of like knocks them down to to you know being vulnerable like everyone else but yeah just the idea of like you're in the middle of someplace you shouldn't be and then you don't have any any money like that happened to me once i was driving across the country and accidentally left my wallet in utah and didn't realize until i was in san bernardino california and i didn't have any gas and i didn't have any money and as like a perfectly fine individual and it like like having to like pay and handle for money to put gas in my car to try to like get the extra like 70 miles where i was going <laughs> it's like it's oh like a wild gosh. like yeah like like when I say I feel like I've been in almost every situation in this movie, like not all the John Candy stuff, but like it is wild how like this is just what happens in life. Yeah. And so to pack it all into one movie is like it feels so uncomfortably relatable sometimes that I think that like, you know, if you've if you've traveled or had these situations that you can be like, oh, man, like I I understand the rage tirade he gives the uh, the lady at the rental car <laughs> window. <laughs> You well, know, let, let's um, get into let's get into some specific scenes from this point. So, tell me what's your most meaningful scene? Like, is there one scene that really jumps out to you? Like, this scene yeah. has the meaning. So, the most meaningful scene to me is when after after John Candy has nearly killed the both of them by driving the wrong way on the highway, which that that whole sequence again, trying to take off your coat while driving like you have you ever, ever tried to do that? And like your arm gets stuck and then you're freaking out because like like you can't get your hand back on the steering wheel because like you're like chicken wing with your arm behind you. Has that ever happened to you before? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, again, in that moment, I was like, I've OK, I haven't gotten both arms tied to like the, you know, the back of my seat. But like I've gotten stuck trying to take a jacket off while driving. It's like it's so it's so relatable, this movie. But I felt I felt I felt a hot sweat last night watching it, <laughs> even though I knew it was coming. I was like, oh, my gosh, that is such a nightmare. Oh, my gosh. And he's asleep in the passenger seat next to him. And he's just yeah. there like, OK, I can handle this. I can handle it. 
Right, or like you're like trying to do something. Like again, even that, like him being asleep. Like I know I've been on like all night drives, like with my wife sleeping next to me. Like she's asleep, and I'm trying to like, I don't know, like do like try to like reach for headphones or something while like not waking her up. And so I'm doing it the most weirdest and then probably dangerous way possible because I'm just trying to like not wake up the person next to me. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, so we get through all of that. All of that aside, which is get super relatable. Um. Which is which is wild, considering how crazy that scene is, right? Um, but the, all of that happens, and they're sitting on the side of the road. They're picking up stuff off, off off the road, and the car catches on fire. And the car is like, it's the worst thing that has happened to them in this movie. And a ton of terrible things have happened, right? But the car is like literally going up in flames. And everything you've seen of Steve Martin at this point in the movie, you feel like he's, he is going to lose his mind. Right. Right. And he doesn't, he just starts laughing. And I was like, yes, I was like that, that clinched the, like how relatable and like funny this, this movie is because I mean, we've all been in those moments where literally everything goes wrong. And you finally hit that point where you go like, this can't possibly be that like get any worse and somehow it did and that is somehow so funny like i'm already so much in survival mode that like sure the car caught on fire why not and them just sitting there laughing i was like it just reminded me of those like moments in life where suddenly you have this realization of like everything you've been holding on to is maybe like not that big of a deal man and like okay the car's on fire so how the heck are we gonna figure this out well it's just so beautiful just the sequence of events like you said that I, first of all my favorite joke in the movie is they're like you're going the wrong direction and then he's like how do they know where we're going you know <laughs> like <laughs> Like, okay <laughs> okay got you know <laughs> and meanwhile two semis are heading right at them and so just that sequence of the semis there john candy turns into a devil itself then they go oh, so the trunk. <laughs> so john candy's the devil he's freaking out then they go get the trunk they sit on it and then the car busts in flames and it's just like i just think it's so well constructed of like thing after thing after thing that is, like you said, like, okay, do we buy it? I don't know. But, like, all of us who have traveled have been there where it's like, oh, I'm just to the point of madness. Like, I didn't even look at it like I've given into this. I just looked at it like, of like, okay, the road is trying to kill me, and I've just gone insane now because it just keeps coming after me. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess that's true. But it's at that point that, like, Steve Martin character actually loses his hard edge completely. Right. That's like true. He's been he's been kind of like after Dell, like the whole time, even when Dell does things that are like good and he apologizes like directly after that, where they they go to the hotel room and they like get drunk and yeah, talk and like and he invites him in. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really in that moment that I feel like his character fully like. Com- commits or has everything lined up for him to like let go of this kind of um really hard edge got to keep the plan can't improvise just ha- have to do it right kind of m- mentality that's kind of keeping him so unhappy so my most meaningful scene you referenced it before but it's 
they go to this hotel room, you know, first of all, the fact that these two men who are total strangers, like end up in this hotel room together and then they go and there's one bed and they like look at each other and there's just one bed and they're just like, oh my God, this is happening. Like we've traveled on the road, you know, I've been on like touring shows and different things where it's like, okay, we're micro budget where you've just kind of ended up in a hotel room. Maybe not everyone has this experience, but I've had that experience where I've ended up in a hotel room room with someone and I'm like oh no like this is my life right now like I have to survive this night and so that moment just like (laughs) jumps out and then they compound it where he like takes the shower and then he gets out of the shower and John Candy has just destroyed the 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 bathroom it's just like soggy underwear and socks in the sink and every single towel is used not only used but like soaked to the bone it is just like the slobbiest bathroom in movie history that you know neil page who's this really like clean type a personality is just trying to like survive and then he sleeps in a puddle of beer that john candy because like the pillows vibrated or the bed vibrated and the beer exploded and then finally he's like clearing his throat and steve martin snaps and that's when he gives this like his longest monologue of the movie which for the whole time he's just kind of like politely kind of nodded or given like curt responses to John Candy, but he hasn't ever told him off until this moment when he's like, you're no saint. You got a free cab and a room and someone to listen to your boring stories. And he just starts like launching into John Candy and really like destroying the guy. But then he goes too far and he starts just cutting John Candy down. And then John Candy gives like the, you know, great speech, which is like, Hey, you want to hurt me? Go right ahead. But I like me. I'm the genuine article. What you see is what you get. My wife likes me. My customers like me. Think what you want about me, but I'm not changing. You know, and he gives this really like heartfelt response and John Candy's delivery of it just melts your heart. And I think what's powerful in that moment is they cut to these reaction shots of Steve Martin and you see he's just like, crap, I shouldn't have said these things. This, And I think that's what makes you like Steve Martin or at least like get through the tension is he knows he went too far. Yeah, I think I, I think that gets like all of the cards out on the table for the for the story as as well, because like, you know what Steve Martin is like feeling yeah. through this, because I think, you know, again, we've always always kind of I think all of us have been in similar situations where suddenly we're stuck with a stranger who just has different social priorities than we do. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's important that Steve Martin doesn't really normally play this type of guy. Like, you know, this is a little bit like movie history, Rob, but like normally he's like the goof. He's the funny guy. He's the dentist and uh, little shop of horrors. He's like lucky day and three amigos. He's like more of a funny, goofy guy. So it was kind of a cool turn that he's just like more the straight man in this story. And um, then you see in this monologue how funny he is. And then you see how like heartwarming John Candy is. And I think like those two performers throwing 100 miles per hour, like giving their all um, and just how talented they are, like is the fuel that makes this movie magic. Interesting. Well, let's get into the like maybe weird, dark bit of this this movie. Can we get yeah, into some weird it. questions? OK, so I want to talk about the end of this movie, which I think is 100 percent supposed to play as like sweet and okay. sentimental. Yep. Right. I think it is the weirdest ending 
Like as I was watching it, I was like, I'm supposed to feel warm fuzzies right now. And I have so <laughs> many questions. <laughs> First of all, the fact that John Candy has nowhere to go, that he doesn't need to get to Chicago. He's just been like from Wichita on just like trying to help this random stranger get home to his family, even though John Candy has no reason to go to Chicago is very weird that goes beyond a good samaritan it goes beyond like just trying to be nice and helpful it's like almost predatory like i have so many questions about like why he would even be doing this it goes beyond generosity and that he wouldn't tell steve martin is like an extra mad layer of red flags there when Steve Martin comes back after piecing the whole thing together, Sixth Sense style, like <laughs> if, if I didn't know that this movie came out before the Sixth Sense, I would feel like it was ripping it off. Um, I, I was like, this is weird. Don't go back for him, man. Like th this is a weird secret to have kept. I would be very nervous about this man. So I think this is an interesting. I had the same thought last night. Not that it was horrible, but my big question is like, is he homeless or not? The, the sense that I got from him was, first of all, he was on the plane to Chicago originally. So he did have some sort of reason to be going right. to Chicago. We don't know what it is. We don't know why. But he did buy a plane ticket to Chicago. And he was trying to get there. That's why he got sure. snowed in. That's why he goes to Wichita. My sense of him was that he's just this guy who, like kind of fit he's like a hustler like the most telling scene of him is when he's in the like airport selling shower curtain rings and he's like oh those make you look cooler oh these are you know he, there's a little bit of a con man grifter <laughs> yeah. side to him where he's just like selling these shower curtain rings and my sense of him is like oh he's kind of this sweethearted heart of gold like uh guy who Hustler may be too strong of a word, but just kind of like makes it happen. Mover and shaker that's just trying to like make sense of his life. And he, oh, he had to deal in Chicago potentially. And oh, he just kind of like does different things and like figures out a way to be. And so I don't know if he gets like six month apartment leases. I don't know whatever else, but I didn't take it necessarily as he was like homeless. I just took it as like, oh, he actually thinks like I can help Steve Martin. And that gives him a purpose in life. He's almost like this golden retriever who's like okay sure. i'm gonna help this guy get home because he can do it and we're this team that can do it together and you can see steve martin breaks up with him the second time when they're at the diner and he's like hey you know what we're just better going off by yourself we're better going the own direction he's like okay fine whatever and that's when he gives him the hundred dollars that he earned and he's like you just take it or i'm not gonna leave it as a big tip and he kind of takes off because he's like all i had to give was this piece of myself that could help you and you're even rejecting that and so that's the what I that's right. how I took him. Yeah. And I think that's how you're supposed to take him. I think the just the amount of like hijinks, how elevated this is that it pushes for me. It pushed that kind of like just wanting to give and be be a part of something. It passes that so far past the point of believability that it was it was like I, I felt like Dell needed a, at least some version of a similar like I have to get to this for some big business meeting or you know like like that he he had to have a reason to be in chicago maybe he didn't have a family to get to but at least he he also had to be there or else it i don't know so two other weird things about the ending that i want to point out that i think are completely unintentional the first thing is that when they at the train station and steve calls him out on like not having had a wife right and he says my wife has been dead for like eight years or whatever. I have nowhere to go. And then there's kind of this long pause. And then 
the very next shot is of the two of them carrying this giant trunk that they've never told you what is in this giant trunk this entire time. And my reading of it, which is a thousand percent incorrect, is that is John Candy carrying his dead wife around in a you box? You need therapy. This is an insane take. <laughs> <laughs> because, now, obviously, that's not what it's saying. But like for this movie, I'm wondering, like, what on earth is in this giant trunk you're carrying around? Like, why do you have a giant trunk? Right. Like they never open it. They never show what's inside. And just the just the editing there of like my wife is a dead for eight years and then cutting to this giant trunk. It was just a bad edit. That's all I'm going to say. Like, I totally disagree with you on this take. I think it's a great edit. It's such a because what is so magical about the trunk is it's something that he can't lift by himself. Right. Like they keep cutting back to it. And he can't like right when that train breaks down and then he looks and there's this moment that Steve Martin has and he keeps having these moments in the movie that make you like him and so the train breaks down they're in a field and the conductor says hey you gotta walk a mile and a half that way and he sees this kind of group of displaced people just kind of like walking through the field and then his eyes land on Del Griffith who is dragging this trunk through the mud and he knows I'm the only person on earth who can help him pick up that trunk and carry it and that's just like kind of this metaphor for like their relationship and so i think the trunk is just this like wonderful prop i always assumed it is like shower curtain rings that he had in it and so the fact that he finally like in that cut he's finally like i'm gonna help you carry this trunk i'm gonna help you get to where you need to go i i think that that cut with the trunk is an all-time cut and it's i mean it's cheesy it's it's a little wonky but it gets you in the feels like i think it works what i will agree with you about is once he gets in his house I was thinking the same thing that yes. he's like introducing him to the family and that sort of stuff. And what I was thinking is like, how long is Del Griffith staying here? Is this like over Thanksgiving? Is it, is there a planes, trains and automobiles too, where he's like got squatters rights and people, the family is just like upset and the wife, their marriage is on the brink of divorce because Del Griffith is there. I was like, how long is he staying there now? And the, the level of sentimentality, which I want to talk about two, two bits there. But when Del walks into the house, Everything is so like the score is playing and they've got like this glossy veneer on the lens and everything. And when he introduces his wife and Dell and they and the wife and Dell say hello to each other, there is so much like subtext in their hellos. It's so like meaningful and serious that I'm like, do these two know each other? Was this a part of Dell's plot this whole time? Does he know Steve Martin's wife? And is he like, like the way they say hello to each other has so much knowing, like sincerity that I was like, this is a whole different movie suddenly. Like, I think there's something going on between Dell and Steve Martin's <laughs> wife. <laughs> There's what? <laughs> There's nothing going on. <laughs> Seriously, watch, watch that scene again and tell me that their introductions to one another are not the most like suspiciously subtextual hellos you've ever seen now, at the end of a movie. Th- it is a weird scene. Everything in that scene like struck me as insane last night when I was watching it. Maybe for the first time ever, I was like, she's like so teary eyed. Like he's just. I mean, I, I've watched I scenes know. of like guys coming back from war, and it was not nearly the welcome that Steve Martin's wife gives him. I mean, she's just teary-eyed. She kisses him like it's the first kiss she ever will have or has had. Or I, it, There is so much like intensity in that moment. And the way that I... 
the way that I, I read know. it was like she was like thank you guardian angel for bringing my husband home it wasn't like I think it wasn't like remember that trip in read. Cleveland I, I in agree. 1984 <laughs> where things got weird it it read it read like that to me so much you don't even know you are a dark dark human being that <laughs> like so <laughs> I don't know man I'm just saying like just just give the end a second watch and read it through and just like watch it through my eyes for a second and tell me that you don't see all the extra weird this is the moment there. the podcast where the car is on fire. You look like the devil. Everything has just gone insane. <laughs> like, I don't know what's ha- that is not what is in that moment at all. But it is. But I agree. But I will agree and concede. It is weird. The kids are all perfect. They're like, Daddy, you know, like they're all dressed up nice. Everyone's there like and Dell's just like, hey, and he's standing there and kind of like the camera ends on a closing shot of Dell. So to in 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 defensive maybe some of that scene a little bit i i can't explain the dell and neil's wife stuff but um have you ever been in a, in a situation where like something like this has happened right or something absolutely like absurd has happened and like you come home to your family and like you want that moment right like you want like to walk in the front door and for your wife to come down to the stairs and be like oh my gosh, you're here and like walk up to you in slow motion and embrace you and like everything in your emotion wants that. But like what happens? Like you walk in and you're like, goes, oh, I'm so glad you made it in time. Turkey's in the exactly. oven. Um, we're going to need to get the table set. Right. And like, like <laughs> you don't ever actually get that. Right. And that, uh, cause that's like not real. Like people are excited to see you and then yep. life keeps going. And like, I think, I think that scene is kind of the thing we long for of like when we, finally get where we're going or see a loved one or something because we want time to stop but the reality is time doesn't stop for everyone else they haven't been through what we just went through right so that doesn't ever happen but there was that relatable bit to that where i thought like you know what there's a part of me that kind of wants this or i've I've had moments in life where i want this and it never this is where you're totally right it's because that that is what that scene is it's kind of the pure fantasy it's the come home fantasy where it's like all the in-laws are getting along in nice sweaters. Your kids are totally dressed up and just excited to see you. Your wife just thinks you look like right. the most attractive dude in the world. Like just, and everyone is just like glowing. Like, oh, tell us every moment of your last forty-eight hours. We want to know what's going on. <laughs> that is the fantasy of what you want. And I think for the last right. hundred times I've watched this, I'm just like, oh. You know, that's that's what's so nice. And I think John Hughes does play into this like sentimentality. All right. You have anything else to say on the end? Were there any other like hit pieces that you need to hit? No, no, I think I think I've uh, I think I've torn the ending apart enough. (laughs) I'm not super defensive of the ending of this movie. I think it's everything. Really, it's everything up until they're in the hotel room drinking. That is the heart and soul of this movie from my most meaningful scene, probably your most meaningful scene. That is why this movie has been seen. That is why it is the Thanksgiving movie and is perfect. Yeah, that and is perfect. <laughs> that got it. No, I, 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 I agree. I would say like the second half of Act Two for me was when I was like completely on board with this movie. So let me ask you this: Who's your most meaningful character? Um, I feel like between the two leads, I, I, I would say probably Steve Martin is more meaningful to me simply because I think I'm more like him. I'm I'm the guy that even before iPhones didn't want to talk on planes. Now you get you on right. a plane, no one talks to each other, right? The idea of having someone that sits next to you on a plane that is going to talk to you is not a fear that you have to have anymore, which is maybe it is sad. sad. I, 
Um, but I, I feel like I relate to his personality far more in the in the way that he like would maybe prefer to be left alone and how he's going to figure it out by himself and has trouble accepting help from people. So I, I feel like I tracked with his story a lot, a lot more. And I mean, Steve Martin is so good in this, like I said before, uh, and, and he is the protagonist, he's right? He's the guy who kind of has to go and learn and arc and change and. I think he is so likable because it's relatable of like why he's frustrated with all that said, there's no doubt for me that John Candy is the most meaningful character because I think you cast (laughs) Jack Black in this movie and it doesn't work at all. You know, you're just kind of annoyed that it's like Jack Black and you're like, you cast Kevin Hart. You cast like, think of all the actors, even a Chris Farley, like even like John Candy. Sure. I feel like Tommy Boy was pulling absolutely this movie like a Tommy lot. Boy is kind of going for it. But what's interesting in Tommy Boyd is like David Spade is more of a jerk and uh, Chris Farley is more just a doofus. Where like Del Griffith is selfish, but he's not an idiot, right? Like he's he is smart enough to know he is like savvy. There is some intelligence to him where Tommy Boy is just pure like, hey, I'm doing bong hits and po- falling on the coffee table. You know, he's just like a big dumb animal in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think, I think John Candy just gives yeah. this movie so much soul. And honestly, I think what I'd really say is that scene before where Dell, where Neil just trashes Dell and Dell gives that monologue back of like, Hey, I like me. My clients like me and hit the look in his eyes and the look in his face when he's hurt. Chris Farley plays that like, Oh, that hurts. John Candy gives these very subtle looks throughout that whole monologue that you can see every time it's like, boom, that's a paper cut. Boom, that's a paper cut. And he gives such energy and such intensity to it that I think that's what holds this movie together. I don't know any other performer who makes this the most watched Thanksgiving movie of all time. I went on Letterboxd last night and read tons of reviews, and every single review mentions John Candy. Right. I mean, I, I, I think for sure he is he is the soul. That level of, like, socially unaware doofus with a heart, I think is really difficult to do, and I think there are very few performers that can walk that that line. I would say maybe like a John C. Riley, or maybe in certain instances, Zach Galifianakis has sort of hit certain areas near that. Um, but I think it, 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 it takes a very specific performer to be able to bounce back and forth um, that that well, believably, that you like. John C. Riley is probably the only one who I would say has the dramatic chops to do what John Candy did. Um, but I also think there's yeah. one other moment that's really informative in the movie, which is they're all in this charter bus or Greyhound bus going somewhere. And then they're like singing songs <laughs> and then... Th- it goes to Neil and they're like, why don't you sing a song? And he's like three coins and a fountain. And he tries to sing and it just bombs. Everyone in the bus is totally silent. (laughs) And then you see John Candy look and he's like Flintstones. And he kind of like saves it and gets everyone singing along. And I think that's such an important scene in the movie, which is like Steve Martin is the waspy privileged, you know, got ad agency guy. And John Candy is us. You know, we are the every man who has felt like, we are the right. most people who watch in this movie feel like I don't have $700 cash in my wallet. I don't have eight different credit cards. <laughs> I don't have all the things where like, it doesn't matter what financial problem you throw at me. I can overcome it. That's Steve Martin. John Candy is like, 
I'm scrapping and trying to save myself. And I think the way that he's doing yeah. that makes us empathize with him and makes him the soul of this movie. Yeah. No, I think I think he is he is the soul. It, it, it's so interesting, I, I think, when it comes to especially like buddy movies like this or really any any m- movie for sure. I think you're supposed to relate to the protagonist the most. That's kind of the goal. Um, but I, I, I think it's interesting how people can take different things away from a movie based on your own life experience and who you connect with most in the movie and how a good writer will write believable characters from all aspects so that people walking out of a movie can have these ideas of like who was in the right in this movie, right? Like who did the worst thing to who, right? Who is actually the hero or who had the justification to be actually uh, uh, upset? Like well drawn out characters that draw from different people's life experiences make movies that people talk about. I want to go back to absolutely. And you know, I think that's what I noticed watching this movie again was like, there's certain times where I was like, Oh, Steve Martin's in the right. And then other times where it's like John Candy's in the right. And that's real life, right? When you're traveling with someone, it's like sometimes you're a jerk, sometimes other person's yeah. a jerk. But it's not just like, oh, this person's always right and the other person's always wrong. There is this like ebb and flow between those two that felt real and felt human to me. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. So I think we're we've litigated this movie well, but I'm curious from you, Andrew. This is your <laughs> final moment. What is the meaning of the movie? You may have said it earlier, but this is your final closing argument. I think the meaning of this movie is not all that far out. I think uh, Ebert had it right in that opening review you read at the top, which is that some of the uh, movies that we watch the most are ones that have a fairly simple, straightforward premise. And so I think the meaning of this movie really does center around like you don't know what someone else's life is and giving grace and compassion to someone else. Right. Is you have to, in this case, very literally walk hundreds of miles in someone else's shoes before sometimes you can really understand, like, why they are the way they are and why they respond the way that they respond. Very sort of basic meaning there, but I think it does it in a really sort of uh, a fun hijinksy way, but in a, in a way that maybe right up until the last five minutes um, does 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 hit you and is very, very memorable and meaningful yeah i don't have like a new take on it this is not memento this is not inception this is not a david lynch movie (laughs) where i'm like actually if you put all the pieces together the movie means this it is incredibly straightforward which is on the holidays we all kind of build our own you know empires where we have our own little family we have our own little meal we have our own little schedules we have our own Mm. little plans and those plans and those things we're trying to do are the center of the universe they're the most important thing in the world but sometimes we need to have a car breakdown we need to have a flight rescheduled to open our eyes and see hey there is a much bigger world and there are people around us who are hurting who need love and help and compassion or at least a little bit of grace and kindness as they maybe cut in front of you in the airport line at least like don't jump to conclusions that everyone else is a villain and doing something horrible and actually there's a painful story to everyone else's past of like who they are and why they act in the way that they do 
And I think like a lot of movies cover this ground, but I don't know if any movie does it better than Planes, Trains, and Automobiles of like really consistently putting two people together who are an odd couple, who the more you learn about them, the more you see like, oh, there is humanity and there is flaws. And I think what's so interesting that Ebert hit on that I read at the beginning was like, these guys have the same flaw, which is they are totally isolated. It's just one of them knows it and one of them doesn't. And I think for most of us in life, we are isolated. We all isolate ourselves. Like you mentioned, it's easier to isolate yourselves more than ever. But we need other human beings to have a conversation with on a plane to help us when something breaks us down. Like we need other people. And that's a big part of what the holidays are about. And even though this meal, this movie doesn't carve a turkey or show anything else like that, it does show the empower of like, hey, there is a lot to be thankful for. And part of what you should be thankful for are the people all around you. I would agree with that. It's it's uh, it's a fun little movie. I'm glad that uh, glad that I sat down and, and, and watched it this wonderful Thanksgiving week. Well, uh, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Uh, hope you enjoyed the podcast. We're is coming near to the end of the year and we have a lot of exciting stuff coming up. I think we're going to talk about the Fablemans at some point. Uh, we're going to talk about a few other movies. I haven't even told you this, Andrew, but I thought it would be fun to do a your interview like hey what are your top movies or tv shows from the year and maybe do like a quick oh, sure. uh, bonus episode with best of stuff but uh on thanksgiving week i just want to say andrew i'm thankful for you and i'm thankful for all of you kind people who happen to be listening to our voice right now i am thankful for you as well rob thank you so much thank you listeners out there thank you for listening to this thank you for maybe watching this movie and taking something away from it as well as a good laugh uh you never know what other people are going through in their life and maybe sometimes it's good to uh you know lend a helping hand and um, help someone carry their trunk that may or may not be holding their wife's bones. Well said. All right, that's it for this episode. We will see you next time on The Meaning of the Movie. Oh.